Point this morning. Uh, we're in a series called Upside Down. Uh, thank you for coming uh, to the Wills Point campus. We want to say thank you to all our people online and our Edgewood campus for joining us. I pray that this series has been really good for you. Basically, the series is where Jesus comes and teaches his longest message recorded in the Bible to the, the Israelite nation. And he's sitting here talking about ways that, that we really should see the world. And last week, Brandon discussed just, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if you missed last week, I pray that you uh, take some time and go and just uh, watch that online, because it was a fantastic message about just talking about forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And so I pray that uh, you just do that if you need to. And today we're going to be looking at chapters or chapter 5, verse 8. And it really just says this, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And there's three words that kind of just jump out to you. And that's one, what does is, what is pure mean? What does heart mean? And what does see mean? Those are the three words that just kind of jump out at me. And as I was looking and studying, what does it mean to be pure at heart? And what does it mean to see God? So we're going to take a look at this idea of purity, and um, if you look at our culture today, the idea of purity uh, broadened. Uh, back when my parents were uh, teenagers, purity was definitely a lot more narrow than what it is today, and, and we're not even talking about like sexual purity or anything like that, because this is talking about our heart and the purity of our heart. So uh, at our house, we eat wheat bread. Like growing up, I ate white bread, and I still to this day love white bread. I know there's no good nutritional value. There's no nutritional value at all in white bread, but uh, I still enjoy it. But my wife, on the other hand, she likes wheat bread. So I try to buy wheat bread. So I come home um, one day with some honey wheat bread. And while it is fantastic, right, because it's got that little sugar rush from the honey in it, and I see this as wheat bread, right? I mean, it clearly says on here, wheat. And to me, that should make it wheat bread. But to my wife, it is not, because it's not 100% whole wheat bread. So to her, this is pure wheat bread, and this is impure wheat bread. This is dog food, and this is people food, basically, at our house. And so the idea of purity that he's discussing here is this 100% pure. And so this is the idea that our heart is 100% devoted to God. And that's hard for us to understand, uh, because we, our heart really is device, divided for, uh, to a couple of things. Like we desire certain things. We desire to do what we want to do. Uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament was talked about, they do what's right in their own eyes. And so we as a culture will do what's right in our own eyes also. And our heart's divided based off of our culture and what we learn from the Bible. And so Jesus comes and he wants to turn our thinking upside down. And you and I, 
will say, okay, I think I'm pure in heart, but we gauge it off of I'm better, I'm, I'm better than I am evil. So I'm, I have more good in my heart than I, than I do evil. And we hope that, that, that God grades on a curve and that we can actually go see God. But what the idea here is, is that it's 100% devoted to God. So let's put it this way. Like in, in the Bible, God really relates uh, just the church and his relationship as a husband and wife. And so I've been reading this book called uh, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer. And he puts this idea of partial surrender or not being 100% devoted to God in the idea of marriage. And I, I have it quoted here because I want to make sure that it comes across correctly. But this is what he writes in the book. He says, imagine if I proudly announce this idea that you come with a great idea to your wife, uh, announce to my wife that during the next year, I would be 95% faithful to her. Now that is an A minus at even the strictest colleges. My wife, however, would not be excited. That means out of the hundred girls I know, I plan to be sexually involved with five of them. Now that is not an A minus faithfulness rating. That is wholly unfaithful. And so if I, the picture is if I came up to my wife and I said, hey, I'm even going to be 99% faithful to you, that is being unfaithful. And if God relates, if God equates his relationship to his church as one of marriage, then he expects 100% faithfulness. And so this idea of pure of heart is this 100% devoted, you're purposing your heart towards God. And in our culture, we have a lot of things that will take our attention off of God and onto the creation. We fill our lives with things that take our attention off of God and place it on other things. And so we're going to just kind of take a look at what it means to be 100% uh, faithful, pure in heart towards God. In fact, J.D. Greer continues on and he says it this way, Hey, you don't follow Jesus like you follow someone on Twitter. When you uh, are free, where you are free to take or leave their thoughts at your leisure. Following Jesus is not letting him come into your life for an influence, even if it's a significant influence. Following Jesus means submitting to him in all areas at all times, regardless of whether you agree with what he says or not. And that's, that's hard to do. Like put it in the ideas of marriage. Like even when it comes to the idea of this simple whole wheat bread, like I want to let my wife know that I am 100% committed to her. And if this is important for her, then I'm going to disregard my own desires for white bread and I'm going to do my best to bring home 100% whole wheat. And I know that's, that's a very almost a childish illustration, but that's the idea is that I am disregarding my own feelings and my own desires, and I'm making sure that God is pleased, and, and the deepest desire of my heart is to please God. And so that's where we're going to go. My problem is, and the Bible's very clear what our problem is, is that in Jeremiah 17, it says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? And so now we have some tension here. We have some tension to where Jesus says, hey, if you are pure at heart, if you're pure in heart, you will see God. But 
The Bible's clear that the problem is not God, it is our heart. It's desperately sick. It's wicked. And so how do we wrestle with that tension? So I pray that God's going to speak to us today and speak through a character in the Bible that we can see what it means to be devoted and set our heart towards God. So let me pray, and then we're going to continue on in just some quick verses on our heart. Father, I, I pray that you teach us today. God, teach us about our heart. Teach us about who we truly are and God, who you truly are. God, I pray that you help us to to realize what it means to be devoted to you, Father. God, help us to, to live lives worthy of our calling so that we can see you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm gonna just pick some verses out of the Bible. So you know that we're not just talking about Jeremiah saying that our heart is wicked. Because Jeremiah was a prophet of old, right? He was Old Testament. Maybe we have evolved some and our heart has changed. And the problem is, is Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that nothing new is under the sun. So it's not like we as humans change for the better. In fact, we're always wicked. Our heart is always wicked. And so we're going to take a look at some of those instances in the Bible where there's other characters that talk about the heart. And we're going to start with Jesus. And he starts here in Matthew, and he says, Hey, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean out the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And we understand that word hypocrites. Like we love to point that out when people say one thing, but they do the, do the opposite. And so they, they say, hey, I'm going to love you, but it feels like their actions don't show love. But what Jesus here is saying is, I want you to catch this. He says that your actions and your words actually line up. Like here's upside down thinking. Like it's not based off actions and words. It's based off of your heart. Your heart, your motive does not line up with your actions. And so I can't tell you if your actions are pure or not. Only you you can battle that out with yourself. And so I don't know how you go to work and you present yourself. I don't know if your motives are pure in that. I don't know if your motives are pure in the way that you love your wife. I don't know if your motives are pure in the way that you parent your children. I can't tell you that, but God can. And he comes up and he says, first examine your heart. Make sure your motives are pure so that your actions are true and you're not hypocrites. Because it doesn't matter if you think I'm a hypocrite. It matters if Jesus thinks I'm a hypocrite. And so first and foremost, search your heart. And what are your motives behind your actions? And he goes on and says this. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. And I get this. I'm glad Jesus said it this way because I can relate to that. Like if you go out to eat and they put a bowl down on your, where you're sitting and it's not filled with food yet, and you look down and there's something left over from the person that used it before, you're going to ask for another plate. Because you don't want somebody else's leftover food in the food that you're about to eat. But if they go ahead and fill it up, there's the inside's clean, and you look on the outside and it's a little dirty, maybe you'll just wipe it off and eat it. Or you can take the example that happened to me just probably last week. Right? Flies have been bad recently. 
I don't know why. It's just been bad. And so they've been coming into our house, and I had a water bottle. And, you know, flies will buzz around and land on the water bottle. You shoo them away. They may even land on the top where you drink from, and you shoo them away. You may clean it off. You may forget and drink it, right? But as I drank half of this water bottle, I walked off and came back, and a fly had landed inside. It's like doing the backstroke in my water. I'm just like, this is gross. And so what do I do? I take it and I dump it out and throw the bottle away because the fly is on the inside. So Jesus puts it this way. He says, I'm going to make it very clear for some East Texas rednecks, right? Hey, clean the inside so that your outside looks good, so that your outside matches. And so Jesus starts and he's changing our way of thinking. He continues on. He says, hey, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So what comes out of the heart? Well, evil thoughts. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, I got the last two. Like, I've said some slanderous things before, and I've even lied before. And so out of the heart, which is evil thoughts, comes words. Now, here's the thing is theft. Like, Maybe I've stolen something, maybe I haven't, but I can guarantee you that inside my heart, in my mind, I have wanted somebody else's stuff, and I have thought about stealing. And Jesus says, that's just as bad. He says, adultery, right? And says, if you look after lustfully at another woman, it's as if you've committed adultery because you've done it, you've done so in your heart. And so he attacks, he he questions, he puts into this, Uh, our minds, this tension of, is my heart pure? And the problem is, is it's not pure. So what do we got to do? We'll continue on here. David, who was a man after God's own heart, he, he says it like this in Psalms 24. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Basically, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Who can see God? And he says this, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. But what does it mean to have a pure heart? He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's basically not putting any other idols above God. Not letting our heart go from God to something else. Money, job, status, family. First and foremost, we love God fully. And then we can love others. And then James, Jesus' younger brother, puts it like this. He says, hey, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So if you want to see God, right, if you want to draw near to God and be able to fill his presence and see him, you cleanse your hands, you sinners, and you purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does this mean? It means if your mind is is 50-50, God and the world, you're double-minded. You don't have a pure heart. Well, back up four verses, and this is how... This is what he means. You adulterous people. He basically puts it out there that we're sleeping on God. He says, you do uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? I could never say that word. Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot say, God, I'm 95% in with you and I'm 5% in with the world. It is being unfaithful to God. That is the point of our heart being pure. 
It is a complete devotion to God. But I know it's hard. It's hard because we deal with everyday life, right? We deal with work and the workplace and the people coming in and just having these impure thoughts with, at the workplace. We deal with students at school. We deal with our friends. We deal with our friends when we go on the golf course or wherever we have to take our kids to ball practice, to, to ball games. We have to um, deal with uh, at home. We have to uh, relate to our spouse. We have to relate to our children. We have to parent our children. We have a lot going on in life. And the thing is, is like we've chosen that. We've chosen our lives, right? We choose who we want to marry. We choose if we want to be parents or not. We choose uh, what job we want, what, what profession we want to go to. We even choose where we want to work. We apply at different places. We choose what friends we have. We choose our extracurricular activities. And ultimately, the reason why we're so busy and our attention is taken from God onto our lives is because we have chosen to leave God out of it. God is not the problem. It's our heart. It's our divided heart. And so you might say, man, Brian, I just don't, I don't know. I mean, my environment is crazy. I mean, our culture doesn't speak about having God in the workplace. Our culture doesn't talk about having God at school. Our culture doesn't talk about having a godly marriage. In fact, if, if I'm not pleased at my marriage, then we just divorce, move on and find other people. And that unfortunately is, is a most, is it, what happens in most cases. But God is like, no, that shouldn't matter. In fact, your standard is so different than the world that you should be devoted to me. So today we're going to take a look at Daniel. Daniel is part of the Old Testament. He is uh, um, really, uh, we're going to lay the uh, foundation here. We're going to take a look at him because we read the first uh, six chapters of Daniel and we think that God shows up to Daniel and then he shows up again and then he shows up to his friends, and then he shows up again, and then he shows up again, and one final time, maybe in the course of a year. But if, we're re- but if we look and study the book of Daniel, it's like you're looking at a bookshelf, and the first chapter is, is the end cap, and the sixth chapter is the other end cap. And in between, we have all of these instances where God comes. And so if I tell you today, hey, we're going to take a look and lay the foundation of of Daniel here. I'm going to tell you it's a span of 60 years. A span of 60 years from chapter 1 to chapter 6. And God shows up, God relates, God really deals with Daniel five times that we know of out of 60 years. Now, if we don't hear from God in like two days... We think he's forgotten us. If we don't hear from God in like a year, if God doesn't change our predicament in six months, we think that he's forgotten us. But here's the environment that Daniel is in. Daniel is, he's captured. So the, God has allowed Babylon to come and capture the nation of Israel. It's called the Babylonian captivity. And so Israel has done what is right in their own eyes. They've started worshiping other gods. They started to forget God, basically put him on the shelf and allow their environment to shape who they are. And God says, okay, if you're going to leave me, if you're going to do what's right in your own eyes, then you are going to be held captive. And so King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and captures 
and takes over the nation of Israel. And he uh, desires to have some Israelites with him at Babylon. And so he says this, he says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility. So he looks around and he says, okay, I don't want you to bring me any peasants, people of the street. I want you to go to the nation of Israel and find those that have good appearance, that are of royalty, that are of nobility, because I want them to be able to be in my presence. I don't want them to look like they shouldn't be there. And he continues on, he says, youth without blemish. I don't want old people, those that might die in six months. I want to, I want to be able to uh, basically teach and help people learn to, to be in our culture. He says, youth without blemish. He means like, don't get anybody with a burn or missing an arm or blind or deaf. I want them to almost like look perfect. And so he picks Daniel and he says, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, I want them to to be able to learn, endowed with knowledge, to be smart, to to be able, their minds to be transformed. I want understanding of learning. I don't want them to be um, older in years to where they know they're set in their ways. I want them to, their minds to be molded and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And basically they say, I want to teach them culture. I want to teach them literature. I want to teach them Babylonian thought. So he takes Daniel and his three friends and he brings them to Babylon and where he's going to teach them and instruct them for three years. Basically take this idea of this culture and ingrain it into them. In fact, he even does this. He says, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he calls Shadrach. Mishael, he calls Meshach. And Azariah, he calls Abednego. And I want you to see that Daniel in Hebrew language means God is my judge. And so they change his name to a servant of Baal. And then Hananiah means the Lord is gracious, and Shadrach means inspired by the sun god. Mishael means who is what God is, and Meshach means who is what the moon god is. Azariah is the Lord helps, and Abednego is servant of Nebo. And so what you're seeing here is not only do I want to teach them our culture, not only do I want to teach them our language, but I want to remove their god totally. Like I even want to take their name and change who they are. I want their identity to be changed. I don't want the God of Israel anywhere in our culture. And this is the predicament that Daniel is in for 60 years. For 60 years, Daniel is held captive over three different kings, four possibly. And he's sitting here and we wrestle with the fact that God hasn't changed our predicament in one year. And God doesn't want to change your predicament, but he wants to walk you through it. He wants to change your identity as he strengthens you. Because what does he do here? Daniel stands up and says, hey, get this. And so let's go on here. So he says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. So that word resolve there means to purpose in our heart. 
Like if we did it word for word, it means purposed in our heart, resolved. Like there is no backing down. It's a, this idea of pure in heart, this 100% devoted to the fact that I am going to be devoted to God even in this culture. Even though you change my name, you change my identity, I'm going to allow God to speak into me. Until we ask, he says, okay, can we please not eat the food sacrificed to idols? And what does that mean? Like the problem is, is these people would sacrifice the food to idols and then they'd bring it to the king, the food that was left over and they would eat. And so Daniel's saying, look, I don't even want to touch the food that claims to be offered to another God because there is no other God. And you might say, we don't worship other gods today, but we sure do allow things into our house that take our attention off of God and we worship the creation. And so we may not, we may not worship false gods and the idea of idols, but we definitely allow idols into our house. So what does that look like? Well, think about the thing that's sitting above your mantle, the TV, or one that you have in your bedroom, or one that you have in your kid's room. It demands our attention. What else demands our attention? Our work. We choose a job that we may have to promote ourselves in, that we may have to uh, make some shady deals on the side in order to be promoted. And so we, our attention is at work and it's away from God. Our spouse. We can take our attention off of God and put it on our spouse and treat them better than we do God. Our kids. We allow them to get into ball to where they have to practice three nights a week to make into select ball in order to have a game on the weekend. And we call this family time. But really we're allowing our attention to be taken off of God and placed on other things, creation. Let's take the worst one, right? We have allowed this into our home. We've put, it used to hang on the wall, right? Do you remember when you were a kid, uh, students today, you won't remember this, but man, it used to hang on the wall. And when it rang as a parent, you knew that you couldn't beat your teenager to the phone. They, they would run, if you had brothers and sister, they would run to try to answer it to see what? If it was someone for them. Because we all desire to feel wanted. We all desire to feel needed. And so what have we done? We've taken it off of the wall and we've put it into our pocket and we've allowed it to be a lot more accessible and have our attention drawn to it, right? We, we desire to have someone call us to feel wanted. And the problem is, is we don't feel wanted by God. So we divert our attention. What can we find on this device? Man, if you're not careful, you can find a lot of things that are ungodly on this device. And it can take your attention off of what God has for you and shape and mold your mind in ways that you don't ever need to have it shaped or molded. Right? You can connect to social media now on this device. And you can find out who likes you more and who doesn't like you based off of how many what friend requests you get, how many likes you get on your posts, whether you're funny or not. And really, social media, we say it's all about connecting, but it's all about us. And so first and foremost, I want you to see that just because we're not worshiping an idol, 
If we worship ourselves, we're worshiping a God. Because God desires to be worshiped and sought after and devoted to first and foremost. But if we elevate ourselves and our attention is drawn off of that onto us or creation, then we're putting other gods before him. And so Daniel, even though in this culture, away from home, is placed in this. He says, culture doesn't speak identity into me. A new name doesn't speak identity into me. In fact, God is the one that I'm going to be solely devoted to. And I'm going to say, hey, I don't want to eat these, this food. In fact, just let me eat what God's created. Plants, vegetables, fruit. And let me live off of that for 10 days. And the eunuch's like, he's worried. He's like, okay, 10 days. And he comes back and notices that Daniel and his friends are so much more healthier than anyone else. So he takes them before the king, and this is what you see. He says, in, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God blesses them and gives them wisdom beyond all the other people 10 times more than any more in the kingdom. Now, has he changed their predicament? No. He's not brought them back to Jerusalem to their home. He's not brought them back to their family. He hasn't changed the predicament and he won't for 60 years. But he has changed their identity. He's allowed them to have favor in somebody else's eyes, in the culture's eyes. And so he starts off and he says, hey, you've got, this is Daniel in his 20s. He is elevated in status because he's been devoted to God. And then it goes on and he, and it says this here, he says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that's 60 years later. That's chapter one. So what do we see? We see where Daniel is given this ability to interpret dreams and he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There's handwriting on the wall for another uh, king and uh, he translates that. He gives visions for that. And then we see a chapter where his friends have to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar and pretty much be pure in heart, be devoted to God and not bow down to the golden image, the statue, and, and they get thrown in the fiery furnace. Well, what happens? They see what is considered one like the Son of Man. Some interpretations believe that that was Jesus standing in the fiery furnace with them. The pure in heart shall see God. And then it goes on and uh, Daniel uh, translates another yet another dream with Nebuchadnezzar. And then we get to King Darius right before King Cyrus. And Darius, who uh, is over Babylon at this point, he, he sees Daniel and has elevated him fairly high. And this is 60 years later now. So in this span of 60 years, how devoted has Daniel been to God versus the culture around him? And he starts on and he says, then this Daniel, same Daniel, became distinguished in chapter six here, distinguished above all other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Like he still has been devoted to God and that devotion to God shows forth in the way that he obeys and loves people. Like it transforms him. He doesn't break the culture's law. He doesn't stand out negatively. In fact, people see seem to find favor with Daniel so much so that the king has elevated him above all other people in his kingdom. And he's planning to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps who didn't like this idea, right, because they wanted to be elevated, sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Now this isn't God's law, it's the Babylonian law. What they say is, hey, we're going to try to trap Daniel doing something incorrectly in our culture. But they could not find, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Now, I I want you to see this here. Daniel has had the same job for 60 years. 60 years, he's been in the same position. He's been elevated. He's been under three kings. And for 60 years, he's been faithful. First devoted to God. And he's not allowed culture or his job to, he hasn't been unethical in any way in his position. Like how many of that how many of us can say that in the jobs that we have now? Like I have done a hundred percent things ethically at my job. That's Daniel. For sixty years, he's been in the same position and he's done it well and he's found favor. And these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it connection with the law of his God. He said, Okay, the only way that we're trapping Daniel is if we understand who his God is. And now this is what I want you to see. This is the devotion that Daniel has had to God. 60 years ago, Daniel gets placed into captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I'm going to teach them culture and our language for three years. In fact, I'm going to change their name so their God is nowhere in our culture. Yet 60 years later, these men know that the only way that they're going to trap Daniel is if they attack the God of Israel. So the plan for King Nebuchadnezzar to wipe the name of God out of, of their culture did not work because Daniel and his friends were devoted 100% to God. And so they see him and they say, okay, we know we've got to attack their God, his God. And so they go to King Darius and they say, hey, king, you know what? You're like a god. So I think that we should pass a law that says no one can pray or bow down to anyone but you. And of course, the king at that point is like, yeah, I kind of like that that law. I kind of like to be elevated to God because that is our human condition. We want to elevate ourselves to the position of God. And so the king is like, yeah, let's do it. So he writes the law. And what happens? It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. I want you to catch that. Like Daniel knew what the document said. Daniel knew it had been signed. 
Because you're not in a position as high as Daniel without knowing what laws and what documents are being signed by the king. And so here we have Daniel that knows what's going to be done. He knows what the law says, and he doesn't try to stop the law from going. Even though he believes in God and knows that he should pray to God alone, Daniel doesn't step in. He says, even after it was signed, even after he knew it was signed, he goes home and he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So here's the picture. That the law is signed, Daniel knows who, what it says, yet he goes home. Now, how easy would it have been for Daniel just to stay in the lower part of his house, right? It's in the upper chambers. Stay in the lower part of your house where no one can see you. Or go up to your upper chambers and close the shutters. Bring the curtain across, because back then there was no glass, right? So they had a curtain or they had shutters that they could, that they could close the window uh, with, yet Daniel leaves it open. How many of us, right? How many of us are so devoted to God that we live behind closed windows? Like we don't, we keep our faith at home, but at work, you know what? I'm gonna gonna just keep my faith in here, in my bubble, and let them believe what they want to. And I'm not gonna hurt anybody That way nobody's going to hurt me, and I'm just going to have my faith at home, and I'm going to come and do my work well. Praise God for that, but it's not being faithful. He opens the windows, and he kneels down and prays towards Jerusalem, as he had done previously. We have the whole word of God today. Daniel probably didn't even have a scroll. Yet he faithfully prayed three times a day, thanking God, being devoted to God. And we can't even open our Bible every day. We can't read it every day. Because we've allowed so many things into our lives that demand our attention. And our hearts are divided. We know the story, if you've been in church. Basically, the guys are waiting for him, and they catch him, and they say, hey, Daniel is praying. Let's throw him to the lion's den. And King Darius doesn't want to, but he's already signed the degree, so he gets thrown to the lion's den. The next day, Daniel sees God. The angel of the Lord comes and keeps the lions from devouring Daniel. He gets out, and King says, hey, let's everybody worship the one true God. And we see that Daniel is faithful. And here's the the cool thing about it. Chapter 7 through 12, doesn't surprise me that it's in this order. Those that are pure in heart see God because the rest of the book of Daniel is nothing but visions of the end times. It's visions of God performing what he said he's going to do 
from the beginning of time. It's the end of humanity. Those that are pure in heart shall see God. What does that mean? Does that mean one day you're pure in heart, you're going to stand before Jesus and see God face to face? Yes. The problem is our heart is deceitfully wicked. We can't say that we have a pure heart. But the thing that we know, the thing that I know, that I can stand for, that I can really be devoted to and and believe is the fact that Jesus died on the cross so that I could have his righteousness. And I've purposed my heart towards that. And I believe that wholeheartedly, that one day I'll stand before God and be judged by what Jesus has done and not what I've done. Now, does that change the fact that I need to do something now for God? No. We don't do good works to be accepted by God. In fact, we're accepted by God, so we do good works. We change. We devote ourselves to God. We devote 100% to God so that others can come to know him. In fact, Moses puts it this way. In Deuteronomy, he tells the, this is the fifth book of the Bible. So this starts out, in fact, Jesus quotes this very verse here. And he says, hey, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Be purely devoted to God. And then what does he say? And these words that I command shall, you today shall be on your heart. So not only do we love God, but we accept what he says that the way that he's made us to live, we should live by because that is in our best interest. And so we put his commands on our heart. How can you put it on your heart if you don't know what it says? How devoted are you at learning and studying God's word? He says, in these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And is that it? No, you shall teach them. You should do something with God's word. You should teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We should teach them to our children and when we're in community, when we're eating, we shall talk of them when we sit in our house with whoever's in our house. When we walk by the way, we should talk about Jesus And when you lie down and when you rise, the idea of being fully devoted to God, love God and love others. The reason why we love others is because God first loved us. So what do we need to do to be pure in heart? And it comes down to this, that we need to purpose our heart, that we need to resolve in our innermost being, that God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy of our attention. God alone is worthy to be to devote our time and energy and love towards. That we need to purpose our heart, that we need to know that we love him with 100% of our being. We need to spend continuous and faithful time in prayer and reading. That's what we saw Daniel do. He purposed his heart towards God and then he continued to pray and thank God. We need to find time to spend with God daily. If I didn't see my wife daily, there would be a problem with that. We need to forget about our environment. 
We need to stop using our environment as an excuse to not spend time with God. We need to stop using our culture as an excuse not to be devoted to God. We need to stop using everything that we've allowed to come into our life that demands our attention to be an excuse not to be devoted 100% to God because he made it clear. If our heart is divided, we're enemies with God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for today. I pray that you mold our hearts, God. Help soften our hearts to where we can know truly that we're 100% devoted to you. God, I know we've failed. I know, I know perfection isn't the goal, but I do know that we need to desire to progress. I know we need to desire to look more like you. And God, I, I pray that you give us a desire to open your word and to study it and to learn what it means to live like you've called us to live. God, help put a desire in us to love others despite who they are. God, I pray that you help us to be faithful. Help us to be 100% devoted and all out for you, God, so that the people of Van Zant County can see a difference in the way that we live our lives and we give glory to you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.